This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Kinyokahage Nation in Chochage, also known as Montreal, Quebec. The original lands of many First Nations, including the Kinyokahage of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, Huron-Wenda, Abenaki, and Anishinaabe. When we engage with technology that has only been made possible because of colonial motives, it's extremely important for each of us to reflect on our own presence within these digital spaces, like on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or however you're listening to this right now. We can reflect on the power relations that exist within applications like these that make it so that certain interests are being catered to, that certain populations are being advertised to, And in this, we can also see the populations that are being excluded, alienated, or even completely ignored. In advertisements, in accessibility, motives, content, in all of these things, we can see the underlying forces of colonialism working to exploit certain populations while serving others. We can also think about the digital division that exists between those of us who have access to high-speed internet that allows us to use these applications and those who don't. And remembering that this is no accident. To learn what land you're on, go to native-land.ca. to the lily pod it's me linnea hope you're having a sweet day i am so excited about today's episode that i'll just be recording on my own i am very excited about the next few weeks where i'll be recording with some very cool people so hang on to that if you're sick of just hearing my voice just know that this is the last one for a little while <laughs> but today i'm gonna be rambling about queer coding queer baiting and transforming heteronormative narratives in cinema into queer ones. So queer coding is this subliminal messaging of characters that aren't explicitly identified as queer. I'm talking in the context of movies specifically right now, but these characters possess certain backstories or traits or characteristics that could be perceived as queer, that could be read in a queer context. But the important thing is that it's all found in the subtext. It's not explicitly stated in the story. It's not part of their character. It's like this kind of underlying tone that you can notice only if you're looking for it or if you are also queer and you recognize those same characteristics within yourself or within stereotypes of queer people. And kind of going hand in hand with queer coding is the term queer baiting, which appears a lot in cinema. I think Disney is a really big queer baiter. That's a really good example for this conversation. Basically, queer baiting is just claiming representation of queer people within a movie or a TV show without ever actually making it visible within their story. So a recent example of this might be the character of LeFou, I think his name is. It's like the side Gaston's sidekick in Beauty and the Beast. In the live adaptation of Beauty and the Beast, there's all these like subtle implications throughout the movie that LeFou is gay, but the only like very slight concrete evidence we have of this 
is in the last scene of the movie where he dances with another man for about 0.2 seconds. And Disney was making it this big thing. There was a bunch of articles that came out saying like, oh, wow, like Disney's first openly gay character. And it was like a very, very subtle hint to his sexuality, if any at all. And by doing this, movie makers are baiting queer audiences, hence the term queer baiting, without actually ever running the risk of fully representing queer people in their movies. And with Disney, this is a really big one because of their need to be perceived as super family friendly and good for kids and blah, 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 which is often used as an argument against the representation of queer people in movies or TV. There's a lot of conservative groups and religious groups that have always been concerned with the family friendliness of portraying queer characters in movies and in TV, which kind of takes me to the conversation about the history of queer coding and the history of queer baiting that I think we'll jump into now. So in the 50s and 60s, religious groups as well as the government were very, very concerned about queer representation in cinema because of the negative effect it was having on the public and, oh no, we have to protect our children and all of this stuff. And so in 1954, there was this thing that was created called the Comics Code Authority, which was basically invented to replace government control over the type of content that could be included in graphic novels. So the Comics Code Authority basically was just there to make sure that gory or overly violent content, as well as any mention of sexual innuendos or implication of sexual perversion or sexual abnormalities, which was queer sexuality, made sure that that kind of content wasn't showing up in graphic novels and in comic books. And the Comics Code Authority didn't have entire control over all publishers of comic books, but because of how dominant the discourse was around explicit content like violence or deviant sexuality, most distributors, this is in the US, um, most distributors wouldn't sell books that didn't follow this code. So it made it nearly impossible for comic books that had any mention of sexuality or sexual orientation that wasn't Puritan to be distributed. So basically, a bunch of places went out of business. There was very, very limited content. The only kind of stuff that was being produced was that very Puritan Christian type of love that was very vanilla, very family-friendly, you might say. And that was all that was out there. And all the other stuff was being censored. It wasn't available to the public. It wasn't, or if it was available to the public, it was at very, very small quantities. But that's just comic books. So in terms of cinema, queer content wasn't banned everywhere in American cinema, but it was definitely taboo and very frowned upon. So this meant that if there was a queer character in a movie, there was never an overt explanation that they were queer. It was never an obvious thing. It was always a very subtle, subtextual kind of representation. So their queerness was hidden in ways that were very stereotypical. It was in mannerisms, in dress, in costumes. So for men being coded as queer, it often meant them being dressed in more feminine clothing or having stereotypically feminine mannerisms or qualities that separated them from the much more masculine characters of cinema and then vice versa for women. So women who were being coded as queer were presented much more masculine. They wore like suits or they had lower voices or they were much more masculine than their female counterparts who were the classic feminine ideal. And the thing about these characters is that they were just queer enough to be recognizable to queer people watching these movies, 
but not so queer that the public could be angry about it and then censor these movies as well. And this is where a lot of stereotypes were perpetuated. A lot of stereotypes really took ground in cinema. And a lot of the flamboyant gay, the butch lesbian, the hypersexual bisexual woman, it all kind of took off to these stereotypes that we now know today. Following this time period of censorship, of limiting content that could be distributed, of limiting representation in cinema, the civil rights movement came about, which acted as a sort of gateway for more representation of queer people in cinema and also in books. But with this representation came all of the stereotypes and tropes that had already been established during the queer coding phase of cinema. So the psychotic and violent trans woman, the sexually promiscuous and evil bisexual woman, the hyper-feminine homosexual, all of these tropes that I'm sure many of us are still very familiar with today. And we can still see these in everywhere in cinema today. Although they might not be as obvious, they still appear a lot more often than we might realize. And the same thing for queer coding. We still have so many characters that are queer coded within cinema, even though we don't need this anymore, even though we should be at a point where we can have openly gay, openly bisexual, openly trans characters within movies and TV without them being a secretly coded kind of character. And I guess I'm talking more about within the past 20 years or so, I'm thinking like, 2000s, 2010s, Disney is a really good place to go to if you're looking for a representation of some kind of queer-coded character, which is kind of what I want to get into right now is some examples. But before I jump into that, I also want to make a comment about how there are certain characters that are queer-coded for queer people, and then there are other queer characters that are coded for homophobic people. And that's sort of what creates the division between the villains and the protagonists. And you can you can tell which characters are coded for queer people and which ones are coded for homophobes. So a more recent example might be the character Elsa in Frozen, where there, there's been a lot of discourse around this of how her character is very queer-coded in the sense that her character is kind of like a representation of the process of coming out, of realizing your sexuality or even your gender identity and the sort of like the parents trying to cover it up and then she's hiding it for her whole life. She's terrified of it. Other people are terrified of it. And then she runs off into the woods and she discovers herself and she gets to freely express who she is and she's so happy and da 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 and all of this stuff. And that's kind of an example that's more positive that's maybe targeted towards a younger queer audience that's not necessarily explicit in the way that it demonstrates queerness. Because Disney still has to be family friendly. They still have to be subtle with their implications. And who knows, maybe maybe this isn't really a thing that they had intended in writing the character of Elsa, but it has been something that has caught the attention of many, many people because her character and her character's story really does seem like a big metaphor, a kind of symbolism for the queer experience. And then there's other characters, I'm thinking back to old Disney, in The Little Mermaid, Ursula, who's the villain of the story, her character was actually based on the real-life drag queen, Divine. So there's a whole lot of queer coding in there. You can tell just by looking at 
the body language, the facial expressions, the makeup, even like the hair and the way that she moves, it is very, very similar to that of Divine. And if you're not familiar with Divine, you can easily find a clip of one of her performances on YouTube, I'm sure. And you can immediately tell if you've seen The Little Mermaid, if you know who Ursula is, and you watch a clip of Divine, you will absolutely be able to see the similarities. And when you look at the character of Ursula, how she's like this villainous, very over-the-top, dramatic kind of villain in the story, we can kind of see this from a different perspective that maybe isn't so positive, that isn't portraying queerness in such a positive light. And this is one of the less heavy examples of how negative portrayals of queer people or queer-coded characters allows us to link these traits and these characteristics and mannerisms to ideas of villainy and of sadism and of psychosis. Other queer-coded characters that have been portrayed in this negative light include Norman Bates from Psycho, who is probably one of the more famous queer-coded characters. Norman Bates' character is incredibly feminine, really odd, very strange, and spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Psycho, stop listening now. (laughs) Um, And one of the defining things about Norman Bates' character is that he wears his mother's clothing while he murders women. That's one of the things that makes him this crazy, psychotic, scary individual is that he dresses up like a woman and kills people. This is one of the original depictions of the psychopathic, serial-killing trans person. And there are a lot of clues in the movie that point to Norman Bates' character being queer, but it was never explicitly stated in the movie because it was made during that time period of censorship and fear of sexual perversion. But his sexuality is a very important part of the plot, the way that it's coded in a sort of villainous, terrifying way. Another example of this kind of portrayal of the psychopathic trans woman or the the cross-dresser is the character of Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs, who is, again, this psychopathic serial killer who dresses up like a woman and is also a serial killer that targets women and then brutalizes them and uses their skin and their clothing to make himself feel more like a woman. And I should not have to even explain why this is a horrible, horrible concept and why this kind of portrayal of characters who are queer is incredibly damaging and only heightens homophobia and fear of queer characters in cinema and fear of queer people in real life. I mentioned this in my last episode, but the documentary Disclosure is a really, really great documentary that goes into talking about this kind of portrayal of trans people in movies and why it is so damaging. Portrayals like this one and so many others make it so that the lines between queerness and villainy become blurred until they're almost identical. And this is why there are so many villains that are also queer-coded. Whether it's Norman Bates or Buffalo Bill, these characters and their inextricable link between queerness and villainy then become these walking stereotypes that allow for homophobic people to associate queerness with villainy and with danger. I think that this is a good example of how representation isn't always good. Even though representation is so important, if what it entails is a bunch of dangerous stereotypes that cast queer people in a negative light, then is it even better than no representation at all? And the thing about queer-coded characters that are made for queer people, is it enough to just give a little snippet, to give a little hint of queerness? 
that teases, that kind of gives you a little taste without ever actually fully delivering, without ever giving full great representation. And this is kind of what so many movies and TV shows and Disney especially has been delivering for so many years now. And it, what ties back to queer baiting of trying to attract queer audiences with the idea, the temptation that one of the characters might be queer, may, maybe just a little bit, but then never fully delivers with an actual queer storyline. I think it's significantly better today than it has been ever I think that there's a lot more representation that's a lot more casual, that's a lot more realistic and wholesome and not all about making it a huge flamboyant gay thing and just having it be a part of the character. But the things I grew up watching and the things I grew up reading, there was none of this. Not until I was in my late teens. And so what I did was I made up queer characters. I imagined that there were queer relationships that weren't actually there. I created a queer context out of a very heteronormative one. And at the time, I didn't really realize that that's what I was doing, that I was searching for a little bit of something that wasn't there because I, I was so desperate for that sense of representation, of that sense of differentiation between a heteronormative narrative and a queer one. And I didn't even know that that's what I was doing at that point. But my obsession with Dreary, Draco and Harry from Harry Potter, my wanting Anne and Diana from Anne of Green Gables to run away together in the end. I'm just thinking of all of these things that I used to imagine, that I used to do, that I used to make up in my head to somehow make the story more connected to myself. It was like a sort of escapism. By making heterosexual characters or heteronormative storylines queer in my head, it was sort of a way of me allowing myself to explore that part of my mind that I hadn't been able to fully express or fully explore yet. I remember searching for literally any kind of queer relationship, even if it was the tiniest little speck in all of the books I read when I was growing up, like literally every single one. And I didn't really think anything of it. I didn't really think that there was anything meaningful behind it. I just remember doing it and being very kind of secretive about it. I never wanted it to be something that other people knew about. It was this very, very secretive thing that I did with myself of searching for a hint of some kind of female friendship that was just a little bit too close for them to be just friends or a girl that maybe had a crush on her best friend or something. And it was just a thing that I found myself doing, and I didn't totally understand why. But looking back at it now, like I really just think it was my inner gay really begging for some kind of representation and some kind of validation from fictional characters. And I think it was some kind of relatability thing of understanding my sexuality when that wasn't really easily accessible to me otherwise because I wasn't able to explore it anywhere else. It was all in fiction. So I shift Draco and Harry. I obsessed over Iggy and Ruth from Fried Green Tomatoes. I got butterflies in my stomach when I picked up a book in the bookstore and saw the tiniest little hint of a girl crush involved in the storyline. And this literally used to be how I picked my books of the book store like when I went and my mom would say pick whatever you want I would read like the inside cover or the back of the cover to read like the description of the story and if it even had like the tiniest little hint of a girl crush or like a close female friendship that I thought I could maybe work with 
I would snag it. That would I would instantly snatch it up. And it seems so obvious now that I'm looking back at it and thinking about it, but I really had no idea what I was doing. I knew that there was something going on, but I had no idea that that's what it was. And I think it's a really common thing for queer people as we're growing up to look for those storylines and to look for those potential relationships between fictional characters that aren't actually queer, but we make them queer in our heads because it gives us some kind of imaginative relatability that allows us to explore that part of ourselves that we can't otherwise. And I wonder if that's still a strong thing with children today with or even teenagers growing up now because there is so much more that's accessible and there's a lot more TV shows and movies, although I don't know how many there are targeted towards kids that include queer characters. So I, I don't know how it is for people that are younger today and exploring their sexuality, but I remember that for me, it was a really huge thing to queer code and to search for those queer storylines that I could create and I could imagine up for myself to get some kind of validation. Searching for queer characters, searching for queer storylines, especially ones between women for me, even when they weren't obviously there, was a huge part of my experience reading books and watching movies as a kid. And I think that queering characters and relationships in books and in movies and in shows, especially growing up, is such a playful and imaginative way of exploring sexuality and really leaning into those parts of yourself that you might not be able to lean into in other aspects of your life. And TV shows and movies within the past 10 years or so, I think have really taken advantage of this because they know that any kind of sniff of representation, queer people are going to come running. And so there were shows like Supernatural and Sherlock that took two characters that were seemingly heterosexual and they kind of hinted at some kind of romantic relationship between them. They sort of toyed with the audience and strung it out for a really long time, made it seem like it was going to go somewhere, and then it never actually goes anywhere. And this is what I was talking about with queer baiting, of attracting a queer audience with the idea of a queer character or multiple queer characters, and then never fully delivering. And so this creates this idea of shipping between Dean and Castiel from Supernatural and all of these characters that are queer-coded and that are used as bait for queer people to keep watching the show and to keep hoping for a little bit of something without ever actually making it go anywhere. Maybe a takeaway this week can be watching a movie or a TV show that you used to watch as a kid and try to see if there's any kind of queer-coded characters or queer-coded relationships in that. And thinking back, if you ever did that yourself or if you never even thought about it. And I think that that will be an interesting signifier to how your mind worked when you were younger and if you were curious about exploring a part of yourself that maybe you hadn't yet discovered or maybe this wasn't a thing for you at all and maybe you didn't think about it at all when you were watching movies or tv shows or reading books and that's totally cool too i'm just curious to hear from some of you and 
see how many of you did your own queer coding or did your own queer reads of texts or of movies or TV shows that you watched. I would love to hear anything that came up for you during this and if you decide to watch an old TV show or movie or even like read an old book or something, I would love to hear your perspective on whatever it is that you're interpreting. Another thing maybe to reflect on is how we have bought into or internalized the stereotypes that have been created about queer characters within cinema and how that still affects our own thinking about queer people today or even how we react to seeing those characters on screen. I hope that this episode was fun for you. I had so much fun recording it and I had so much fun thinking about my time growing up as a little baby queer and trying to discover these things about myself through cinema and through books and TV. And I would love to hear from you as always. If you're not already following The Lily Pod on Instagram, you can follow at thelily.pod. We'd love to have you join the little conversation over there. And thank you so much for listening and for hanging out this week. I will see you next time. Bye.